please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Jeremiah 32. Hope. It's been a fun portion of Scripture these last, this last month or so. I told you earlier in the book, I felt kind of um, bad in one sense about as we walk through the text week in and week out, it's like being pummeled, right? By judgment, 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 judgment. And now we, we get the other end of that spectrum. Now there was always hope and judgment. Now the judgment is here, but the message is hope, 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 right? Mercy, 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 mercy. And so the hope continues today. God's expressions of love continue today. God's promises of a new covenant continue today. God's expectation of joy in the latter end continue today. A tremendous portion of Scripture, such a very encouraging portion of Scripture. Not in that God's people must be chastened for their rebellion, that's not a, a fun thing, but in that God is so merciful, so long-suffering, and gives them so much hope. And I love the picture this evening of hope that God paints and what he calls Jeremiah to do in order to paint this picture. We'll dig right in this evening into Jeremiah 32. We begin in verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, we read this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the, uh, the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So we have a new transition here, a new word from the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, and we are given a timetable here. We've had uh, several timetables throughout the book. This is one of the more specific ones that we have seen. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that the word came to him in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar. And he specifies that the armies of Babylon had by this point besieged Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem has not fallen yet, but the armies have surrounded the city. So Jeremiah is writing this with the armies of Babylon around the city. The gates are shut up tight so that they can't get in, but they are on the way. He also specifies that he himself is sitting in prison as the word comes unto him. A reminder of our timeline here. We haven't had this screen for a little while now. Uh, if we come back to our timeline of the final five kings of Judah, we understand that Zedekiah is the final king and that he reigned for 11 years from 597 to 586 BC. Jeremiah said that we are in the 10th year of his reign. So at this point, we are in 587 BC. We are in the, the, the last year of his reign before the final fall of Jerusalem, which means we are in the desperate hours now for the nation. All that Jeremiah has said is now coming to pass. And in many ways, this desperation is seen in the fact that Jeremiah is sitting in a prison. The deeper reasons why are expressed in the verses that follow. We continue in verses 3 through 5. 
For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him, that would be Jeremiah, up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper. So Zedekiah had Jeremiah thrown in prison because Jeremiah was saying, now it's happening, right? This is what I said would happen. This is what the Lord has been saying would happen now for decades. Jeremiah has been saying this for decades now. And now they're surrounded and Zedekiah is still looking for hope. And, and, and this is not necessarily um, a surprise, right? Jeremiah is saying here, the city will be given into the hand of the king. He's saying that, that, that um, the Chaldeans will take the city. He's saying that the king would not escape. He's saying that the king will speak face to face with, with King Nebuchadnezzar, right? So, so in other words, he will be captured. He will be taken to Babylon until the Lord visits him there. Uh, it's little wonder then that Jeremiah is thrown in prison. Right? If you're a king and you're trying to keep your, the morale of your army up, the last thing you want is some prophet here telling you that you're going to lose. Right? The last thing you want is for a prophet saying, you're, you're all going to lose. The king is going to be taken to Babylon. You're still trying to fortify the city. You're still trying to prevail. Obviously, they never stop to say, hey, wait a minute. Jeremiah has been telling us this for decades now. Maybe he's telling the truth. Zedekiah simply wants to keep Jeremiah quiet. So he specifically prophesies that the king would not be delivered. No doubt this irked Zedekiah. And so he threw him into prison. There's nothing people dislike more than when a person is correct after years of ignoring him and marginalizing him. And that's what we see here. So we have the setting. Now let's get to the content. Verses 6 and 7. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamael, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Jeremiah is sitting in the, in the court of the prison, and God speaks to him, and he tells him what, what we might believe here. There's, there's always a question when you read this, when you read Hanamael, the son of Shalom, thy un- thine uncle. Is Shalom his uncle, or is Hanamael his uncle, right? Uh, we would generally presume that the, the name closest to uncle would be his uncle, so Shalom would be his uncle, and Hanamael would be his cousin, and so I'm going to assume it's his cousin. Hanamael comes to, God says, Hanamael, the son of your, your uncle Shalom, is going to come and he's going to ask you to buy his field in your hometown. Remember, Jeremiah is from Anathoth. And so in his hometown, he is going to ask him to buy, to redeem this field because Jeremiah was the family member that had the right of redemption. Now, this situation harkens back first to the law. We read in Leviticus 25 verses 23 through 25 about this. The Bible says, "The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, 
then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So we find a situation where a man is poor and he needs to make money so that he can live. So he sells his land and, um, and he sells it between, uh, to, to someone that is not within his family. But God wanted the lots that he had given to tribes and to families to stay with them perpetually, right? So now he sells the land to someone that is not his family. And now there's a conflict between this need for money and the fact that God has expressly said that the land needs to stay in your family. So anytime a man sold his land, he could do so. It was, his, it was the right of his brethren to redeem that land back to their family. Of course, they'd get it back on the year of Jubilee anyway, the 50th year. But it was the right of the family to redeem it back. We'll see in the next verses that it doesn't seem like this is the exact scenario here. It doesn't look like Hanamael had previously sold the land and he's asking for Jeremiah to redeem it back to the family. It looks like here Hanamael is trying to sell the land and he's giving effectively Jeremiah. He's asking Jeremiah, before I sell it into the hands of someone who, who is not family, would you first redeem this land and keep it in our family. That seems to be as we continue. And so we continue in verses 8 and 9 where we see this play out. So remember, all of that was the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. That, it hasn't happened yet. Now it happens. So Hanamael, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee. Notice he still says it's his field. That is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So the Hanamael comes and says everything that, that God said he would say. And Jeremiah, in, in hearing what God had just said, God, Hanamael's going to come and, or Jeremiah, Hanamael's going to come and do this. And then Hanamael comes and does it. Jeremiah says, I know that this is of the Lord. Now, it being of the Lord, we need to understand how bad of an offer this was, right? It's actually very strange that the offer would even be made. Jerusalem is under siege. They're surrounded by Babylon. We all know uh, that, that uh, Anathoth was not in Jerusalem, right? It's in the land of Benjamin. For all we know, Anathoth was already in the hand of the Babylonians. It was already conquered. We would assume so. If they're at the city of Jerusalem, we would assume that the land has been conquered. Hanamiel comes to Jeremiah and asks him to buy property that is in the hands of Babylon, uh, of Babylon most likely, right? In the, in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It would be like selling land next to an active volcano that's about to erupt, right? You get on Craigslist and you say, volcano erupting, someone buy my land for me. He's eh, probably not. No, thank you, right? Lava's flowing down the hill and you're trying to sell the land to someone. No, probably not. That's kind of what's happening here. But Jeremiah knew that this was of the Lord, that God had told them this would happen, and he perceives thus that he should buy the land. So in verse 9 we read, And I bought the field of Hanamael, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. So Jeremiah buys the land, buys the field for 17 shekels of silver. A low price, to be sure. A low price. But considering the land was about to be taken by Babylon, or perhaps had already been taken by Babylon, Hanamael probably left there considering he got a pretty good deal. We continue, verses 10 through 12. 
And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamael, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. So Jeremiah did everything by law. Right? The city is besieged. He's in prison. They're building bulwarks to come and and take over the city. And Jeremiah is getting things notarized, and he's getting things sealed, and he's making sure it's all legal, and he's going and getting witnesses who are coming to the prison to make sure that everybody knows that he bought this piece of land. And it's a very, very public display of him buying this land. He takes the evidence to a man named Baruch, the son of Neriah, uh, as his mediator uh, through the process. He's going to become more important later on in the book, so keep that name, Baruch, in mind. All of this is happening while he's in prison. Everyone is, is being called down to the prison to make it happen. Very, very public. And probably pretty interesting. Everyone's kind of like, Jeremiah, why are you buying land? Uh, what's going on here? Right? This is really strange. Now, think about this with me before we get to the point. Land is an investment, right? You, you buy land as an investment. And it's, it's, if, you, if you talk to people and you talk about all of the different investments that you can make and you talk about stocks and you talk about land or you talk about real estate or you talk about um, bonds or whatever it might be, Land is generally a very solid, very stable investment, right? Because land is something physical. Land is land. And because land is land and, and it, it, it stays there, uh, it's generally very, very, uh, it's non-volatile. It's, it's a very stable, it's a very good investment, generally speaking. But it's only a good investment if it's valuable, right? If it has actual value. If I buy land in a swamp, it's not going to be a very good investment because no one's going to want to live or build on a swamp, right? So you see it as an investment, and by nature, if I purchase land, I am placing a vote of confidence on that land, right? I am putting a vote of confidence that says, I think this land is or will be someday worth something. A person invests... Because they have confidence, they invest in stocks, they bet money, they buy real estate because they have confidence in the event or in the market that they are going to receive their investment back, something worthy, right? Now, Jeremiah is doing all of his due diligence to publicly invest in this land. Typical doomsdayers don't buy land very often. Jeremiah has been saying judgment, judgment for decades, that's not very typical for the guy that says this land is going to be taken over by Babylon to be the one buying land. Normally, doomsdayers sell land, sell everything, because they don't need it because they're doomsdayers. But this man, though he's been declaring for decades Babylon's invasion, he is personally investing simultaneously in the land of Israel. So what do we see in that? We see his confidence in God's restoration, right? Right? We see him being so confident that in 70 years the nation will be brought back. So confident that there is a future for this land with Israel. That he says, yes, I will go through the entire legal process of placing my name on this land. Because I believe that this land is still Israel's for eternity. 
And that's what we read as we continue, verses 13 to 15. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, so they'd have a sealed portion that would be preserved and then an open portion that could be read, uh, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Jeremiah speaks directly to Baruch in the name of the Lord, asking Baruch to take these evidences, uh, the purchase, the sealed portion, the unsealed portion, and to put them in an earthen vessel. This would be a form of protecting, of preserving the documents, and that they should be preserved for a long time so that there is record for a long time of these things because God says these fields will be planted again. These vineyards will be planted again. These houses will be inhabited again. Whereas at this moment, the land was worthless. On the authority of God's word, Jeremiah says this land is still valuable because God will restore it. By faith in God's promise, the land will again be possessed. So follow the event with me just to get it all settled in our minds. For decades, Jeremiah has been saying Babylon will come no one will, be, uh, will avoid those that, that, that aren't taken to Babylon will die by the sword or by pestilence or by famine, right? Now also, likely for decades, Jeremiah has been promising restoration. The fact that Jeremiah's words have come to pass as it relates to Babylon and judgment is a good indication that things will come to pass as it relates to restoration. But here's the thing. The people were no, no doubt very discouraged in this time. Right? There is, they are surrounded. It, uh, failure, destruction, the siege seems inevitable. Food is probably getting scarce. The walls are shut up. They have no way to import anything into the city. Tough time. And Jeremiah reminds them, going the extra mile to prove his own confidence in God's word, he is spending money on land that has or will very soon be completely out of Israel's hands. And through this, any man or woman of faith would be deeply encouraged. Then we read Jeremiah's prayer, a prayer of submission, a prayer, perhaps a little bit of confusion, but a prayer primarily of submission and confession. We read this in verses 16 through 25. Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which hath set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and hast made thee a name 
as at this day, and hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror, and hast given them this land which thou didst swear unto their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts. They are come unto the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass and behold thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money and take witnesses for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. We're going to spend next week considering the nature of this prayer and considering some characteristics of prayer. So I'm not going to dig deeply into the prayer this evening. But Jeremiah acknowledges God's greatness. He acknowledges God's power. He acknowledges that nothing is too hard for God. He acknowledges that God's loving kindness is great, that God is mighty in works, that God is just, that he gives to each man according to the fruit of his doings. He then applies the character of God to the history of Israel. He summarizes the faithfulness of God to the nation as he brought them out of Egypt, as he brought them into the land as he had promised, flowing with milk and honey. But then he says, the people, and I love how he puts it there in verse 23, they have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Of everything that you commanded them to do, they've done nothing, right? They have not done anything that you told them to do. And so it makes sense that you would judge them. It makes sense that Babylon is now knocking at the door. He says there in verse 24, Behold the mounts. That idea of mounts here means military mounds. Those mounds that they would, they would kind of create on the city wall. They would build a ramp of dirt. They'd start stat putting dirt against the wall of the city until it formulated a ramp that went from the top of the wall uh, and, and down to, of course, the ground. And then they could all just run up that wall to get to the top of the wall. And that's what he's saying. He is literally, they have, they have no power and they are watching these bulwarks, these mountains be built. <laughs> And it's just their doom every day. Every day that the slaves of the Babylonian Empire, no doubt the slaves were, I'm sure slaves were doing it, uh, but as the people in the Babylonian Empire were just adding more and more dirt, and every day these, these mounts are getting bigger, and every day is one day closer. Every day is one day closer to the armies taking over this city. Jeremiah is watching these ramparts be built. The enemy is coming. And yet the last bit of Jeremiah's prayer here, he says, Behold, God, you see all of this. And yet, God, you've said unto me, Buy this, city, buy this field for money. Buy this field for money. Almost a little bit of confusion in his voice. God responds to him in verse 26. We read 26 through 35. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? 
Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on the city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it even unto this day that I should remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So God replies to Jeremiah in the affirmative here uh, that he is the God of all flesh. Absolutely. He acknowledges that there's nothing too hard for him. Absolutely. And this is essential because God's people don't trust in circumstances or outcomes. God's people trust in God. So it's essential that Jeremiah acknowledges. It's essential, it's essential that God is this. Uh, that Jeremiah, as he's buying this field, he's not actually trusting in the investment, right? He's trusting in God. As he buys this field, he's not actually a, uh, uh, trusting in its potential as much as he is trusting in God. God, you, you see all this and you told me to buy this field. God acknowledges the sin of the people. He acknowledges that Babylon is coming, that the city has provoked him to anger to the extent that he should remove it before him. He acknowledges that the city has never done anything good. He acknowledges that they have sacrificed their children to Baal. He acknowledges that the houses, the roofs of the houses that are going to be on fire in just a little while were the same roofs that put idols on top of them to worship. He acknowledged that the house of God that is about to be torn down was a house that was defiled with the idols of Baal. He acknowledges that they were out in the valley of the son of Hinnom sacrificing their children to Molech, as we talked about before. And he again reminds them, by the way, I have never once commanded child sacrifice. It never even entered my mind to do such an abomination. God reminds them of that. God said in verse 33 that the people had turned unto him their back rather than their face. Though he had been faithful to them, they had turned away from him. So yes, the city is worthy of such treatment. They've been asking for it. They have earned it with their rebellion. But verse 35 is not where God's response ends. Verses 36 through 44, we read this. And now therefore... Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, whereof ye say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them 
out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in, my, in, in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And the fields shall be brought in this, bought in this land, excuse me, whereof ye say, it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains and in the cities of the valley and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord once again. Judgment gives way to mercy. God again promises a regathering, again promises peace and safety, again promises to give them a new heart. And I love it. I love it when God says in verse 41, I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. God says the day that, that, you ha- that, that the nation has that new heart, the day that the nation, my, my fear has been placed into their heart, the day that this everlasting covenant will be ratified with the nation, on that day, I will be able to finally be able to wholly give myself to them. I will finally be able to heart and soul without reservation, without frustration, without any conflict of interest as it relates to God's justice, as it relates to God's righteousness, as it relates to God's holiness. God will be able to pour himself out upon that nation for good. Once again, I remind you at this point, we are recipients of this new covenant. We are there. Our hope, our our blessed hope is that future. But already, in Christ, we are holy, unblameable, unreprovable in His sight. Already in Christ, God looks at us and he sees Christ's righteousness. We have that new heart. And as we abide in him, the fruit of his spirit comes out of us and we reap of the blessings of God's goodness. God tells them in verse 42, Like as I have brought all the great evils upon you, so will I bring all the good that I have promised. We think about all of the difficulties that the nation of Israel, that the people uh, of Israel have gone through in history, thus far to this point in history, culminating with the Holocaust. Holocaust remembrance was just last week, week before, uh, just, just a little while ago. The Holocaust, of course, is not going to be the last round of suffering for the Jewish people. 
though to this day there are still fewer Jews on earth than there were prior to the Holocaust. So many of them died. But there's coming another great time of sorrow, the time of Jacob's trouble. But then God says, all, as all of these evils had been brought upon you for your rebellion, so too there's coming a day when all the good that I have promised will be poured out. And this is why God commanded Jeremiah to buy that field. Because the fields will be populated again. Because people will be buying them again. Because the land will be Israel's again. And on the day when God gives them this new heart, on the day when God rejoices over them for good, on the day when he regathers them and they enter into this new covenant with him, on that day the land will be theirs once again. And in this is the hope which compelled God to tell Jeremiah to buy this land as a sign unto all the people that the prophet who promised them destruction in the name of the Lord also promises a future. Let's apply. Just one point this evening of application. I had mentioned it a few moments ago. God's people don't hope in outcomes. God's people hope in God. I was talking to a young man at the jail. I think I mentioned this uh, Tuesday night as well. I was talking to a young man at the jail a few weeks ago, and he was talking about faith. And he said how he was learning about faith, and he talked about his early missteps. He'd been saved since about November. His early missteps as it related to faith. He had said early in his relationship with Christ, he tried to have faith that his court case would go very well for him. And so he walked into that court case saying, I have faith in God, therefore things are going to go well and I'm going to get off the hook. And that did not happen and he was confused. And then we started discussing the true nature of faith. That faith isn't about when I conjure up in my mind what I want to happen or what I think should happen. And then I put all of my confidence in the conviction that God will give me what I want or that God will bring about what I expect. I have all the faith in the world that God is going to give me what I want to have. That's not faith. That's just me hoping that God will give me what I want. Me convincing myself God is going to give me what I want. And maybe conjuring up in my mind an absolute conviction that God wants me to have what I want to have. But that's not faith. Here we see a reflection of what the Bible defines to be faith all throughout. That faith is not hoping in outcomes. Faith is not me putting into my head what I think should happen or what I want or, or, or what I expect and then saying, now faith is me convincing myself that God's going to give it to me. Faith is not a faith of outcomes. Faith is not a hope in outcomes. Faith is a hope in God. Don't expect good outcomes. Expect a good God. Don't expect to get what you want. Expect to get what God wants for you. There's a big difference. It's so easy to get confused in this thing. And so to lose your perspective on your relationship with God and his promises. Jeremiah wasn't buying a field, as we said before, because he had confidence in the market. He wasn't buying the field 
because he had confidence in the righteousness of God's people, that God's people would earn their way back to him. God, uh, Jeremiah was not buying this field because he had confidence that the king of Babylon was going to look at those purchase orders and say, oh, okay, Jeremiah, you can keep your land. Jeremiah wasn't placing his hope in the markets. He wasn't placing his hope in Israel. He wasn't placing his hope in Babylon. He wasn't placing his hope in anything but God. Jeremiah's confidence was in God, that God would bring to pass the thing that he said, that the nation would be restored because God said so. And that confidence had the real-world implication of how Jeremiah would live day to day and, more importantly, how he would spend his money. Jeremiah says, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I have all faith, not in the field or in the markets, but in God. And I'm putting my money on it. We've been studying on Tuesday nights Hebrews 11. Sort of. And as we have done so on this great chapter of faith, we've seen the same reality time and again, haven't we, already? The men and women of faith did not hope in outcomes specifically. They had things they wanted. They had things they expected. They had ways that they thought things might come to pass. But regardless, their hope, regardless of how unlikely the promises were, their hope was in their God. They sought a better country with foundations whose builder and maker was God. In Psalm 42, verse 5, and then we see it again in verse 11, David writes this, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance. And then verse 11 adds, and my God. David says to his soul, soul, you don't need to be cast down. We don't know all of the ins and outs of the particular troubles that David was going through in this instance. But he had a lot of troubles in his life, right? Fled from Saul, nearly died a few times nearly got in trouble with the king of the Philistines, had a couple of sons rebel against him, had a son kill one of his other sons, murdered Uriah the Hittite, the son that came from that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba died. But in each one of these circumstances, none of which necessarily presented a lot of hope for David in itself. And yet David says, soul, why are you so cast down? God is still on the throne. Hope in him. Don't hope in an outcome. Don't hope in a timing. David probably didn't think on the day that Samuel anointed him king that he'd be spend, spend years of his life running around Judea and Philistia fleeing for his life. He's the anointed king of Israel. But he was. When is God going to give him the throne? Don't know. Saul goes in to cover his feet. David has a chance to kill him. David won't do it. But when's God going to give him the throne? Don't know. But you know what? Don't hope in the outcome. Hope in God. Wait on God. Wait for God's plan. Wait for God's timing. Many of these promises that God had made to David did not work themselves out in the ways that David would have expected. 
probably would not have expected to be running for his life, probably would not have expected that the son who would sit on the throne would not be Amnon, his eldest, who was killed by Absalom. Probably did not expect that Absalom, probably the most kingly of his sons, would be killed by his general Joab. Probably did not expect that it would not be until his tenth son, Solomon, a son with a woman with whom he had initially had adultery, that he would have his son through whom the kingly line would continue. And with each circumstance, the faith of David could have been broken, except that his hope was not in the circumstance. His hope was not in his perception of the relationship between these circumstances. His hope was in God. So David would again write in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Wait, not upon a circumstance, wait upon God. Wait, not upon an expectation, wait upon a Savior. Wait, not upon a reward, but wait upon the reward giver. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart unto Him. Let Him be your refuge, because He is a refuge. Faith is not trusting that God will give you what you want or give you what you think you want. Faith is not trusting that God will arrange particular circumstances according to your understanding or according to your desires. Faith is the contentment to wait upon God for His best, for His desires, for His timing, for His circumstances with confidence knowing that if you wait upon Him, He will give you what is best. That He will bring these things to pass as you wait only upon Him. So how are you doing this evening? Maybe it's the future. Maybe it's next steps. Maybe it's what to do next as a parent. Maybe it's what to do next for a job. Maybe it's what to do next for school. Maybe it's what's to, what, what to do next in a relationship. Maybe it is the lack of these things. When we talk about you having faith in God, it's not about you having faith in a circumstance or in a result. It's talking about you having faith in the God of the circumstances, in the God of results. Is there a concern, a desire, a conviction that you have been aimed towards and your heart is hoping in an outcome rather than hoping in the God behind the circumstance? This is a recipe for sorrow, for disappointment, for frustration. Because while there is nothing too hard for God, we also know, as Isaiah 55 tells us, that His thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. No one has the mind of the Lord. To this end, it is our privilege not to rest our hope upon outcomes, but to rest our hope upon the one who may or may not bring these things to pass. Jeremiah prayed to God and said in verse 17, God, there is nothing too hard for thee. God acknowledges this in verse 27 as he asks, is there anything too hard for me? And if this is the case, that there is nothing too hard for God, 
then perhaps it is our privilege to spend less time worrying about what God will do and spend more time simply living in confidence about what God, uh, God can do. Spend less time hoping for a particular outcome and more time hoping in the God that provides the outcomes. Hoping in God himself rather than hoping in our outcome. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.